Welcome to Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. We're here to help you take your health, fitness, and mindset to the next level. It's time to level up. Dr. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the Level Up podcast today. I've feel like we've both been following you for a very, very long time and watching the way that you teach and educate, you just make things so fun. And you're probably the only reason that I would ever go back to uni. So if you were my lecturer, I would hands down be there all day, every day. So thank you for coming on. We're really excited to have you teach our listeners just a small part of your amazing knowledge. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Uh, I, I love teaching. So that's a wonderful compliment. Uh, to say that you'd come back to uni just so I could teach you. It would, it's, it's the best job. I've got the best job. Mm. It's so awesome to hear that. And I think looking at the content that you put out, Mike, it's really evident how much you do love teaching and how passionate mm. you are about it. Uh, we do have so many students that do listen to our podcast and both Danny and I have been through, I guess, the education system and, and sort of had the positives and the negatives. So it's so refreshing to see you on Instagram and YouTube putting out such incredible digestible content um, for people to consume. So thank you for everything that you are doing on those platforms. Thank you. It's, it's fun to do. I do it. I use the uh, Instagram and Twitter and all that type of stuff just to spread the word to try and make things simple because I know that anatomy and physiology, which is what I teach, is, can be difficult and complex and there's a lot of stuff. So hopefully I do make it easier for people. And you're relatable as well. I mean, you're a buff dude and you train (laughs) yourself, you have a beautiful family and um, yeah, it's all happening. So I feel like this is how new age teaching should be. It should be fun, relatable, and we all need to be passionate about learning. So that's why, yeah, people are so drawn to you and the memes that you put up. I live for those memes. <laughs> like they are amazing. Keep everything up that you're doing. It's brilliant. We've got to do it. I, I've got a Facebook page with my students that I'm teaching at the moment and we have a medical meme Monday. So all the students <laughs> oh, have to so post cool. up a meme of the current <laughs> topic and there's some brilliant ones. There's some pretty dodgy ones, but there's some brilliant ones. So no, it's, it's, it's good. I think a lot of people, when they think about university and they think about, you know, professors and people that teach them, they think of some old white bloke who's just been doing it for 40 years and he's just got a yep. chalkboard and he's just drawing up. And hopefully I break that mold a little bit and make it so that people want to turn up to class and don't, mm. I still get students falling asleep in class. Oh, don't get that's me wrong. Inevitable. <laughs> no matter how hard I try, yep. but um, hopefully at least I can make it entertaining. Mm, absolutely absolutely I love what you said there Mike you've got a Facebook group with your students you know back when I was at uni social media was like a big no-no we all had to change our names and it was almost (laughs) frowned upon um even when I started working in healthcare it was sort of like you know scribble out your name on your badge so no one can find you on social media you know keep those lives separate so that's incredible that you've got a Facebook group because you've got to you've got to communicate like your audience regardless of like the age demographic you have to speak their language you do. The universities are a, are a strange place because you, I would say the average age of a student that's coming in would be, you know, between 18 and 30. And they're moving through and they're going to be utilizing the most up-to-date social media platforms and, and engagement communication platforms. And universities are a little bit behind the eight ball. They, mm. They're not on top of that. They, the universities will pay a lot of money for certain platforms to use and students just don't want to use them. Mm. You know, we've got, and they're all standalone platforms, which means students need to go and learn how to use an entirely new platform to get content. When there's brilliant things out there, you know, Facebook, while there's obviously issues associated with it, everyone's using it and Mm -hmm. everyone knows how to use it. And they open their phone and they press a button and they're there. Mm. But with these other platforms that a lot of universities use, They've got to download it. They've got to log in. They've got to do this and that and everything like that. And it makes it hard. And so that you're already putting this big gap between you and the student. So you just got to try and minimize that. And Facebook does it. So, you know, students can anonymize themselves. They don't need to tell us who they are. We make it a private group so nobody on the outside can join. It's yep. just us. And we just use it as a message board, you know, yep. ask questions, give us answers, throw memes in, throw in jokes. And it helps. It boosts morale. It allows for us all to be brought on the same level because students see their lecturers as, you know, higher up. Students won't come and see me because they're scared of looking dumb. 
when yeah, they come yeah. into my office. And, you know, that makes me sad, obviously. Mm. So doing Facebook, everyone's on the same level. So we just talk yeah. to each other like colleagues. And that's how it should be. The lecturer yeah. and the student are actually in the learning process together. Mm. Brilliant. Yeah. Because when it comes to learning, I remember back in the day, we'd all be trying to rote learn things and it was very black and white and uh, uh, sitting in the car before the exam with my papers, trying to memorize everything. But to have that element of laughter and fun and to see you draw on the whiteboard and do all those Mm. things, it just helps you remember so much better. Like it's fantastic. Mm. I think so. I think you've got to, you've got to make it engaging. You've got to make it edutainment in a way. Yes. And, you know, I talk to a lot of academics and lecturers and they say, it's not my job to entertain. It's my job to teach. And while that's true, you can't teach if they're not paying attention. And Mm -hmm. so we just live in the climate where you need to do, you need to change things up every couple of seconds to every minute. And, you know, you see it when you watch an old movie, a movie from even just like, shouldn't say old, but even just a movie from the 80s, for example. (laughs) And it's slow paced. Like Mm. these movies take ages to build something up and one scene will take minutes and minutes. And then you watch a movie now, every five to six seconds, the scene changes. Mm. And it's just to keep our attention. And it's the same with students. You need to make it constantly entertaining, but you also need to make it so that if I can do it, you can do it. And that's the whole reason why I use the whiteboard. It's simply the fact that if I can draw it, you can draw it. So I don't do animations because it just doesn't help that learning process. You need to make it kinesthetic. I draw it, you draw it. I say it, you say it. That's the way to do it, I think. Brilliant. Well, it's clearly working, so for sure. Yeah. More people will start to take a leaf out of your book, I reckon. You're definitely setting the trend. Yeah, Mm. great. So we've jumped right into it anyways, and obviously we've unpacked a bit of, you know, who you are and what you do, but can you share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and what your background is? Sure. Um, I uh, have a PhD in clinical neuroscience. So I did many, many, many years of working in a lab, um, working with people with Parkinson's disease. That's what my research topic was on. And I did a lot of my work on molecular biology. So actually looking at the genetics of neurodegenerative diseases, molecular biology and things like that. So for years, it was just me and a lab bench for a long, 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 long time. I can't Mm. highlight that enough. Um, So PhD in clinical neuroscience. I'm a senior lecturer at Griffith in anatomy and physiology. So my, one of my primary roles here is to teach, but uh, my profile at the university is split relatively evenly between teaching, research and service. And so the service component um, includes the fact I go on ABC radio every week mm. to talk about the human body. I do a couple of TV gigs. Um, we've got a podcast ourselves, myself and a colleague called Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. So if you do want to learn more about the human body, we go through organs and organ systems and diseases and break it down. Um, yes. We've got a YouTube channel, again, called Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical YouTube, where we do the same thing. And so we do a lot of service engagement stuff in schools as well. Mm. And then the research side of things I do, I've moved away from neurodegenerative diseases. And now I look at traumatic um, brain injuries, which includes spinal cord injury. So mm-hmm. a lot of my research now is based on spinal cord injury regeneration and some dementia work. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's busy. Wow. There's a lot of stuff going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. That is just incredible. That, and you're, you're everywhere. You're literally on every platform and, and the research you're doing is just phenomenal. You still find time to train. Every now and then you um, pop up a sneaky bicep flex. <laughs> How long have you been training for? When you were back in the labs, were you training then? Or? I do. Otherwise, I would have just yeah. not been able to survive. I, so when my old man um, is a fitness freak. Ah. And so when I was little, he, he's a martial artist. Uh, And he ran something like a dozen dojos, jujitsu dojos in Victoria. Um, And so he would also work at a gym, but he was also a principal of a school. And so what he would do early in the morning, he would go to the gym, he would train and work there, and then he would go to the school and be a principal. And then after school, he would go to the dojo and teach martial arts. And that was his life and my life for years and years. So I was in a gym ever since I was four, five, six. And I think just seeing him train just would rub off onto me. Mm-hmm. And I remember he would, would have weights at home. And I remember 
with no goal or intention in mind, I'd sit and watch TV and just curl these little doggy bone four <laughs> kilo weights. And I'd just st- sit there and curl and curl and curl and curl. Um, and then you hit a point where you actually look in the mirror and you go, oh, there's some benefits yes. to do well, That's this. where there's the biceps aesthetic. came out of, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, geez. Just oh. Popped out of there. So I think I've just been exercising and training ever since. And I, I have to do it. I don't think I've gone more than a week without doing something mm-hmm. for, I don't know, 30 years probably. Um, so I just, I love exercise. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a big part of my life. Mm. when you were researching you know obviously when you're in that setting like a lot of people probably don't understand how demanding it is from like being inside being indoors being consuming content learning was your training almost a form of your escape outside of that clinical setting as well 100 percent um i would when you're in the midst of a phd it's not uncommon to spend the night in the lab Um, as in sleeping under a desk, doing 24-hour experiments. Um, It's just, there's no, it's not nine to five. It's just not how how it works. Uh, And so I would make sure that every day I would train. It may be at 6 a.m. It may be at 9 p.m. It may be in the middle of the day. But I needed to get my head out of the lab, head out of the bench top and out of the textbook and all of that and just allow for my body to take over and let the mind rest for a bit, which is super important. And I mean, studies show as well that um, mental exhaustion can impact your performance physically. Mm -hmm. And I would see that there was a time I did CrossFit for about five or six years, pretty intensely. My wife's a big CrossFitter now. I don't do it anymore because my body just cannot handle that (laughs) at the moment. But um, I would notice that the big mental days, because I don't have a, a job that's physically demanding, but mentally it is quite demanding. I would, the days that would, were demanding mentally, uh, I would go into the gym and just, it was just, you'd hit the wall early. Yeah. Physically, you couldn't do it. So th- there is a tight connection there. So you do need to exercise and take, take your, let your mind rest a little bit, let your yeah. body rest. You just got to, you got to do both those things. You got to look after body and mind. Yeah. Amazing. And that's very much what we preach. And I like all doctors, all practitioners, everyone should train because can you really be talking about health if you don't promote physical activity, like seriously and movement? So it's really cool that you practice what you preach as well. Um, And when Cheryl and I were trying to discuss what we were going to ask you, there's just so much that you know. We're like every single post you do is a whole nother topic and it's just (laughs) incredible. Like if anyone just wants to learn anything, your page is where it's at. Everything's there. But we thought for the sake of our listeners and because we always talk about training here, we would love you to educate our listeners on the musculoskeletal system and oh. a little bit of science about what actually happens when it comes to hypertrophy, strength, and, and all of that cool stuff. Um, Sounds great. Yeah. So let's get into it, I suppose. And do you mind starting by talking about the types of muscle? Yep. So when we look at the body, we've got different types of tissues in the body, Um you know, we've got connective tissue, we've got nervous tissue, we've got, so connective tissue binds and wraps things together. Nervous tissue is a communication network. We've got epithelial tissue, which forms coverings around the body. And we've got muscle tissue. So they're the four major types of tissue. When we look at muscle tissue, there's three major types. There's cardiac muscle, which is pretty straightforward. It's the muscle of the heart itself. Uh, We've got smooth muscle, and this is muscle that lines our hollow organs, so our digestive tract, a urogenitary tract, our blood vessels. And then the third type of muscle is skeletal muscle, and this is muscle that's attached to bones, and this is the muscle that we move consciously. So anytime you walk, talk, breathe, jump, sing, dance, it's all skeletal muscle that's contracting. And so this is the muscle that we focus on when we go to the gym and we lift weights or we do some form of exercise. It's skeletal muscle. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And those three, it's really important to understand that there is multiple types of muscle tissue. And Mm. something you just mentioned there that sort of prompted me was the cardiovascular muscle that everyone, um, or that we're talking about, you know, training that through aerobic exercise or capacity or training a lot of people use cardio purely just for like burning calories 
how does doing aerobic work or conditioning style training actually train the heart and therefore improve our performance in the gym? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the heart, as we know, um, is contracting every single day. It's contracting pretty much once a second. And if you think about that, if you were to take your bicep and you were to contract that once a second, mm. you'd be fatigued pretty quickly. So muscles, not all muscles are created equally. So they are different. So not just between cardiac and skeletal, but also between cardiac smooth and skeletal, all different mm. in their own way. The cardiac muscle uh, isn't fatigable mm. and it loves using oxygen in order to take what it needs, get the energy, contract, relax, and it just continually does it over time. When you exercise, what you're doing is you're increasing the demand of oxygen and nutrients to the tissues of your body. And that includes the muscle tissues, right? So going for a run, you're obviously going to be contracting the muscles of your legs, for example. Um, you're going to be using your diaphragm. All these tissues require oxygen and nutrients. And the heart is the pump that supplies it, which mm. means the heart in turn needs to contract and pump. And in doing so, anytime you really contract and relax a muscle and you do so by starting to push the boundary, you do it over time, you, you know, more reps, more sets, so you increase the volume and so forth. The demand on that muscle increases. Mm. And what muscles do in response is they grow in size. Mm. So it's not just your skeletal muscle, your biceps, your hamstrings and so forth that grow in size called hypertrophy, but your heart muscle can do it as well. Mm. And so your heart muscle can get larger and this just makes it a more effective pump. It means it mm -hmm. doesn't need to contract as many times to pump the blood through the body. And that means that when a, an athlete, for example, is not exercising and they're at rest, they've got this big, strong heart that doesn't need to contract as many times. So their resting heart rate is likely going to be lower, maybe around about 45 to 50 mm. beats per minute, as opposed to up mm. at that 70 beats per minute, for example. Mm -hmm. So the, one of the benefits you get from aerobic exercise is that the heart becomes a more efficient pump. Interestingly, if your heart does increase in size, you can have this as a pathological issue or a non-pathological issue. So pathology is referring to just a disease state. And so for an athlete, it's, it's not a pathology. It's not a disease state. In actual fact, it's likely to be beneficial for you. Mm -hmm. But you can get your heart growing in size as a pathology. And it can happen if some of the arteries that are leaving the heart become blocked, which mm. means that when that heart contracts, the blood that's trying to get out, it's going through a smaller pipe. And so mm. it's going to overcome more resistive forces. And again, the heart goes, I need to overcome this. What do I do? I get bigger. Mm. So people who are unwell cardiovascularly or metabolically or have atherosclerosis, so some blockages in the blood vessels, they may also have an enlarged heart, but it's not a good enlarged heart, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So from what you said, it's only sort of a problem if the surrounding arteries have some sort of blockage or narrowing. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, a lot because... of people get quite confused when it comes to cardio because, you know, you've got all these things come in like high intensity, lists, moderate, like all these trendy things and people, you know, it's sort of, it's a message I definitely want to put out there to be like, well, cardio isn't just for calories out. Cardio is actually a great way to um, improve your cardiovascular health and improve your performance and improve the way that your muscle tissues can actually uptake oxygen and nutrients. Not only that, but what you mentioned about resting heart rate, like improving sleep quality and all those sorts of things. Um, Danny and I, we both use an aura ring and it's something I've been curious in, including cardio into my routine is how much my resting heart rate has dropped down nearly 10 beats um, since I've included it, which is pretty wow. significant. Yeah. yeah. And actually, in addition to that, what we find is that not just heart rate, but blood pressure as mm. well. So exercise has been shown to be beneficial for a subset of people with hypertension or high blood pressure. And the way that this works is that when the heart contracts, obviously it needs to deliver blood to all the tissues of the body. So you can think of it as though the heart is the trunk of a tree. And then when it pushes the blood out, it's got to go through all these branches that continually branch a branch a branch to smaller branches. And then it gets to the leaves and the leaves are the tissues. Yeah. But when we do exercise, we increase the demand of that blood specifically to the skeletal muscle. And so what happens is blood supplies to other tissues start to diminish and it redirects the blood 
to the muscle tissue itself. And so the muscle tissue gets more and more and more oxygen. Now, your adrenaline goes up when you exercise and a couple of other different chemicals are released when you exercise, things called uh, prostaglandins and things called nitric oxide. And what they do is they help relax blood vessels. Mm. Now, when you relax a blood vessel, your blood pressure drops. And the, the great thing is, while this is happening during exercise so that the blood vessel relaxes and more blood can get through those tubes to your muscle tissue, when you stop exercising, those prostaglandins and nitric oxide, for example, they remain circulating in the system and the blood vessels remained relaxed. And so that means that the blood pressure remains low. Mm -hmm. And the way I talk about it with my students is that the blood pressure is like a, a, a hose attached to a tap. The hose is of a particular diameter. You turn the tap on. At the end of the hose, water is squirting out at a particular pressure. Now, if you were to put your thumb on the end of the hose and just halve the opening, what you're doing is you're narrowing that tube effectively. What happens to the water coming out? It comes out at a higher pressure. And that's the same with blood pressure. If you narrow your blood vessels, the, your blood pressure goes up. So if you relax your blood vessels, your blood pressure goes down. And so this is the way that exercise can even help individuals with higher blood pressure. Mm, yeah, I love awesome. that. That's so cool. And naturally, my mind goes to caffeine just because I'm obsessed with it and so true. <laughs> yeah. We always bring up caffeine on a podcast. So for stimulants like caffeine or anything else that, uh, you know, increase heart rate and things like that, mm. would they have an effect on muscle hypertrophy of the heart or anything similar or are the levels too low? Uh, it really depends on the quantity. We know that when we look at like the LD50, which is pretty much the, the, the level before it becomes not good for mm. us that we can intake. It's a fair bit of caffeine you've got to take before that happens. Mm. Caffeine has a, a, a multitude of benefits within the body. Obviously, it is a stimulant. Um, I can't remember who it was, but someone said to me, you know, I wake up in the morning and I have my drug of choice, which is coffee. And then when I get home in the evening, I have my drug of choice, which is a wine. So we're always yeah. drugging ourselves up at, you know, in the morning and in the evenings. Mm. Um, so it is, it is a drug. So people need to yeah. be mindful of that, even though we just pop down to the shop and, and get yeah. a hit. Um, but caffeine is shown to have a multitude of benefits. So yes, it is a stimulant. So it can be used as a stimulant for exercise. Um, it's been shown to be beneficial in certain types of cases of non-alcoholic fatty liver diseases. It's shown to be beneficial for certain types of Parkinson's disease as well. And so caffeine does have a multitude of benefits, mm. but you do need to be careful because it can induce heart palpitations. If you have too much of it, it can induce reflux as well. So that's regurgitation from the stomach up into the esophagus and you need to, uh, it can increase irritability of the bowel as well you know a lot of us will have our first coffee and then to the jump off to, to the, the bathroom, bathroom. <laughs> but for some people with like irritable bowel syndrome it, it could be the the thing that pushes them over the edge and maybe have a, a bout of diarrhea for example so when it comes to caffeine my point is that yes it's great but you need to be mindful for yourself mm. it can be beneficial for training but it may if you've got ibs it may not be the best thing for you to take because last yeah. thing you mm. want to do is do a couple of skips and then you've got to skip off to the toilet. <laughs> Hopefully you make it in time. I don't exactly. know if any of you guys remember, but um, did anyone used to drink those pulses? Like I used oh. to go, oh, Jesus, do we leave them I at Prelix King? They, <laughs> I would have like 10 of those on a night. And then you look at wow. the caffeine content of them, you're like, whoa, there's like 300 milligrams in each. They're banned yeah. now. I don't think they make them. Oh, yeah, because I haven't heard of pulse for because it's a lot of caffeine, but then also alcohol as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the other thing I was going to say is um, caffeine, like it's really important to understand that it is a drug and like it's actually used in clinical settings, especially in the neonatal uh, NICU for um, um, newborns to sort of help increase heart rate because it is a stimulant. So it is a drug that's actually used in hospitals to um, uh, bring on some of those effects. It's just about the devil's always in the dose, I think. Uh, great point. It, yeah, everything can be detrimental everything can be poisonous or toxic it just depends mm. on the dose mm. yeah cool so you can keep drinking coffee right? yeah i'm going to keep drinking it because i already had two large ones this morning before <laughs> this good <laughs> fantastic <laughs> yeah i feel like when talking about muscle a lot of people just fixate on skeletal muscle so i love that we got to open with that that was really informative so thank you um so moving on to skeletal muscle now, is there different a different way that a skeletal muscle 
can grow compared to the heart or is it same sort of thing that happens within the muscle? So the, the process of hypertrophy, which is just cell growth, you could probably define it as an increase in the size of the muscle tissue or an increase in the cross-sectional area of the muscle tissue. The way that it works for skeletal muscle, if we go back and just think about what skeletal muscle is, like the anatomy of skeletal muscle, you've got the muscle itself, which is what you see, like the bicep, for example, there's the muscle. But then the muscle, if you start to go in, it's like one of those Russian babushka dolls where you open it up and there's another smaller version. Oh, yeah. And so forth. Like that's, how many of they got there? Exactly. Exactly. Little one at the end, you're like, there it is. There it yeah, is. That's little the one. last one. That's how I, I picture skeletal muscle. Oh, I love you know, it. You got the big muscle and then you have a look inside and there's something that looks like a smaller muscle and that's a, a fascicle. And then you take that and then that's got muscle cells or muscle fibers or myocytes. They're all the same thing. Muscle mm. fiber, muscle cell, myocyte. It's the same thing. You take that out and then that's made up of fibrils and then take that out and that's made up of proteins. And it's just mm. these tubes upon tubes upon tubes upon tubes. But I think the important point to get across is that the whole muscle is surrounded by connective tissue. And then you pull the fascicle out and that's surrounded by connective tissue. And then you pull the muscle cell out and that's surrounded by connective tissue and then you pull the individual fibers out which are made up of proteins and it's these fibers or contractile proteins that allow for the muscle to contract and shorten and so there's Mm. two major proteins inside of a muscle cell and that's going to be actin and myosin there's other types but they're the two major types and the way that they work is they basically are sitting in parallel to one another or like plates stacked on top of each other and they need to bind to each other and then walk across each other and shorten. And this shortening is, will shorten not just the fiber, but it's going to shorten the fascicle and the muscle cell and skeletal muscles are attached to bones and many of them go over joints. And so when it shortens, the joint will move and the skeleton will move as well and you perform Mm. some sort of work which is what we call it and forces produced um so that that's a first important point to get across so you've got those proteins and the proteins are lined up in what we call sarcomeres so the sarcomere is the the discrete smallest unit of contraction so when the two proteins walk across each other to shorten or contract the smallest version of that is a sarcomere and you've got sarcomeres lined up um in series, so one after another, and you've got them lined up in parallel, so on top of each other. And when we talk about hypertrophy of a skeletal muscle, there's actually three different types. So you can have connective tissue hypertrophy. That's the reason why I highlighted that Mm. all these different layers of the babushka Russian doll has connective tissue around it. So you can increase the volume of that connective tissue. That's one way of increasing muscle size of your skeletal muscle. Two, you can increase the amount of proteins, Mm. and that's called myofibrillar um, hypertrophy. And then the last type is actually the last thing that we haven't looked at yet is all the rest of the stuff inside the muscle cell. So a cell is this, it's like a city. There's going to be a whole bunch of stuff inside of it. There's going to be libraries. There's going to be factories. There's going to be all this type of stuff, post offices. Um, The libraries, the nucleus, it's got DNA and it makes the proteins. You're going to have the post office, which packages proteins off and ships them away. Um, And, you know, you've got all these different things that are happening. When you increase the abundance of the things that are inside the cell, that's called sarcoplasmic hypertrophy and so you've got mitochondria that you can increase the fluid inside you can increase the energy storage that we've got like glycogen three percent of a skeletal muscle cell is glycogen five percent is triglycerides so fats so you can increase the abundance of that and that's going to increase the size of the muscle cell so it's a lot more complex than we think so a lot of people think muscle hypertrophy just increase the proteins but it's not just the proteins, connective tissue as well. And all the other stuff that's inside. Mm. I just had a horrible flashback to my year 12 biology exam, (laughs) trying to draw a cell with the rough ER and the smooth ER and the (laughs) mitochondria. If I knew there was a post office in there as the nucleus (laughs) or or the library, I would have probably done a lot better than what I did. I love that (laughs) analogy. Yes. So cool. So there is a lot going on. Mike, can I ask you, where does the low threshold, um, low and high threshold muscle unit fiber 
things come into play with that when we start talking about rep ranges? That's a good question. So um, a muscle fiber is nothing without the nervous innovation coming to it. So we obviously have uh, neurons that go from the tissue of our body to our brain to tell Mm. us what's happening. They're called sensory neurons. And we've got neurons that come from the brain to the tissue called motor neurons. Now, if it's going to muscle tissue, that motor neuron that's coming down needs to the term we use is innovate, but it basically speaks to the muscle tissue and it doesn't touch it. So the neuron that goes to the muscle tissue just sits upon it. And there's a little gap between the motor neuron and the muscle cell itself. Now these motor neurons, there's different types. You've got low threshold, high threshold, for example. And what that's referring to is the fact that motor neuron, a motor neuron will come down. It's going to have various branches and these branches will go to different skeletal muscle cells. Now, if I go to pick up my coffee, for example, I'm going to be, and this is just an advertisement. How good is that? Yeah. Luckily, that was sitting there. That was on purpose. I pick that up. It's not super heavy. And so I'm going to recruit motor units to fire off to muscle and that muscle needs to contract and I pick it up. Yeah. They're probably going to be what we call low threshold. I don't need to mm. recruit too many of them. But if I'm now going to pick up something like a textbook, it's heavier. I need to start recruiting more motor units to mm. contract more muscle cells and therefore more muscle fibers and muscle tissue. And that's going to be a higher threshold. So we do have different thresholds. And this is what's important when it comes to lifting weights because you need to keep that into consideration mm. because you can lift heavy loads, which may be like your one RM. So I assume you you guys are always talking about RMs and the body, uh, you know, lifting percentages and all that type of stuff. Mm, so, mm. you know, you can pick, uh, lift something that's your one RM, that's a heavy load. You could do something that's maybe your 12 RM, you know, a weight that you can do just 12 reps of. And that's going to be like a moderate load. And then you can do a light load, which is probably anything above 15 RM. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to recruit different motor units. Yeah. And I think an important point to get across is when somebody's looking at strength training, you'd probably want to recruit as many motor units as possible. So the high threshold, mm-hmm. and that means you'll need to do the, the heavy loads, which is usually the lower rep ranges. Mm-hmm. And then that's going to recruit more motor units and you're going to get strength increases because yeah. strength the way I think about it is hyper, and it's a, a, it's an oversimplification, but hypertrophy is anatomical, strength is physiological, yeah. And cool. hypertrophy is just a change in size, but strength is going to be a function of what's happening at your brain, what's happening at the neuron, and what's happening at the muscle itself. Mm. And so, when you lift a heavy load for low reps, you recruit more motor units, and that muscle, as many muscles as possible possible are going to contract it's one of the reasons why you don't necessarily need to go to failure when you're doing strength training to get the strength benefits yeah perfect and that was that was exactly what i was um like hoping you'd go into when i was reading a book the other day um and you see it all the time when people talking about high threshold motor units and you're like people what like Mm. and this is when rep range is important to understand so you know we've got these different motor units and yes one rep range isn't better than the other but you do need um like diversity so that you can hit all those motor units across different things and of course exercise selection is going to um come into play when you're thinking about rep ranges and loads of course and skill acquisition but it's not just as simple as like any range will do yeah you're right and i think there's you know for many years the the dogma in strength and conditioning was that that uh repetition continuum Mm. where you know you say low reps gives you strength moderate reps gives you hypertrophy Mm. high reps gives you endurance now while there's truth to that it's not as clear cut and you know the window of repetition is a lot wider than we originally thought you can get strength changes from moderate to high reps um, and you can get hypertrophy changes with low to high reps as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But you do, like you said, you do need to be mindful because reps do matter. Volume matters, load matters. Um, And, and so the other thing that probably needs to be taken into consideration is the fiber type. Yeah. I was about to say that. And so, you know, (laughs) so you got the type one and the type two, which, you know, probably just stick to those two because there's subcategories Mm. of, of those. But um, 
type one fibers we think of as like the slow twitch they're non-fatigable so they can contract all the time because they contract all the time they're pretty weak uh they like using fats for energy you know the slow burn sort of thing and they love using oxygen that's the way i sort of define the type one fibers and the type two fibers are the fast twitch contract quickly they're very strong and powerful they fatigue really quickly uh and they like using glycogen or glucose and creatine for Mm -hmm. energy um and that's how I sort of delineate the two. And when you look at the, the way that you train, the heavy loads tend to favor the type two fibers mm-hmm. and the light loads tend to favor the type one fibers simply because of the rep ranges that's coming into play and the volumes as well. You tend to do more mm-hmm. volume when you're doing a lower rep range. Anyway, so that may be an important point because a lot of people, if you're thinking of hypertrophy benefits, for example, not, not just strength benefits, going into the gym, you might, might want to think about lifting heavy to begin with, do mm-hmm. high load, low reps, don't go to exhaustion because you actually don't need to go to exhaustion mm-hmm. in this case, and then move because that's going to target type two fibers, mm-hmm. and then you can move on to a moderate load with a moderate rep scheme and then go closer to fatigue. And mm. then that's going to start helping highlight the type one fibers. Still mm. going to hit type two. You're not, it's not like this clear cut type two, type one, but it might be a way. And that's how I've been training for years and years and years. Mm. I'll yeah. go in, I'll lift heavy for a few sets. I don't exhaust myself, but I make sure I push myself close-ish to my one RM, maybe you know my six RM, for example. And then I'll finish off with multiple sets at a 12 rep scheme uh, and until I'm close to exhaustion. Yeah, that's definitely right. the way I sort of train as well. Like get yeah. your heavy work done early on when you've got the most uh, recruitment from your nervous system, the most mm. energy, you've got no accumulation of fatigue and then move into your low risk exercises where you can go for more of your higher rep, you know, burning styled stuff towards the end um, when you are in a bit more of a fatigue state. Uh, the mm. risk of injury is usually a lot lower when you're doing some of those unilaterals or machine work as well. Great point. Yeah. Fatigue uh, as a injury. Exactly. You don't want to hit the point where you're so fatigued and then you start to do a really complex uh, lift, like a deadlift or a back squat. Mm. And you've exhausted all these muscle groups and then injury. It's time for injury. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a question about time under tension. So when you sort of watch the old school bodybuilding videos, you know, they're just pumping everything out very quick to failure, but then the more science that's um, become well known now, people are talking about time under tension and really slowing down the contraction. So what's your opinion on time under tension for muscle hypertrophy? Uh, tension is king. That's how I see it. Um, you know, we spoke that there's three types of hypertrophy, um, the connective tissue, the myofibrillar and the sarcoplasmic, but there's also three types of causes of hypertrophy. And the first of which is mechanical tension. Um, The second is going to be metabolic stress. And the third of which is going to be uh, damage, muscle damage, basically. Mm -hmm. Now, of those three, the tension is king. You need tension. You have to have it. You can't just have metabolic stress and expect hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. You can't just have damage and expect hypertrophy. You can they will augment or or basically have this synergistic effect with um, tension, but tension is the one that you want. So that's why time under tension is important. And what's happening in this scenario is the fact that skeletal muscle, when you look at it under a microscope, has a lot of nuclei. And the nuclei is important because inside of a nucleus is the DNA. And DNA is what we use to turn into amino acids and that turns into proteins and the proteins help build muscle, right? Yes, the library. That's (laughs) right. And and so the more nuclei you have, the greater the capacity to make proteins. Mm -hmm. That's how you need to think about it. And skeletal muscle have heaps of nuclei. But here's the thing. When you're at rest, your muscle cells have another cell that's sitting there near your nuclei called a satellite cell. Mm -hmm. And satellite cells... Uh, what we call quiescent, they're asleep, but they need to be woken up. And they can be woken up through mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage. And what they do when you wake them up is they turn into a nucleus 
which has DNA. And now you've got more nuclei to transcribe more proteins. And then you can lay those proteins down as the sarcomere, that contractile unit. Mm. And so when you do Ooh. like a concentric movement, some evidence out there says that a concentric movement helps lay the proteins down in parallel, so stacked mm. on top of each other. And an eccentric movement helps lay them down um, in series, so lengthens that tissue. So there's evidence to suggest that different types of training, you know, slow eccentric, for example, under tension, can help increase lengthening of that protein. Yeah. I was thinking about that too, with the hip thrust, everyone's glutes blow up when they start training the glutes in a shortened position. And I was like, maybe that's got something to do with it as the way that it's actually laid down. Um, Mm. I'm going to ask you a bit of a taboo question, um, Mike, because I'm just for my own curiosity. With anabolic steroids at a cellular level, when people do start taking those, does that, how does that work in terms of cellular stuff? Is, Is there more libraries being made or what's actually happening? So steroids, the way everyone should think about, so steroids itself has like a a taboo associated with it, but all a steroid is, is a lipid based molecule, um, or you could say fat based molecule. And all it means is it has different effects to other types of drugs, for example. Um, Let's first, so hormones, if we start with hormones, hormones are chemicals released by cells of the body and they travel through the bloodstream, they bind to receptors and then they have an effect. And that effect may be anything from growth, development, metabolism, whatever. Some hormones will have to bind to the outside of a cell. So they can't move through into the cell. They have to bind to the outside and have their effect via a signaling molecule on the surface. Other hormones can actually move through the cell, just freely move through like there's an open door and they go directly into the cell and they go to the DNA and tell it to start transcribing new genes. And those genes will translate to proteins and then there's an effect. The ones that move into the cell are steroids. So they're steroid hormones. So the way that anabolic steroids work is they simply move straight into the cell, go straight to the nucleus, straight to the DNA, and they tell very certain genes to be transcribed. And these are going to be genes that promote growth and development. Mm. And it just makes more of the proteins associated with growth and development. Mm. There you go. Very cool way to describe it. Mm. And so when you have like a, 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 a steroid hormone that maybe tes- so testosterone is a steroid hormone, if you start having exogenous steroid hormones like exogenous testosterone and you bring it into the system, your body's super smart. It knows how much testosterone is in the system. Mm. And all it does, it doesn't really know the difference between one that you've taken from the outside and one that your testes are making on the inside as a male, for Mm. example. All it does is just measures how much there is. Mm. And so when you've got all this exogenous testosterone coming in and the levels go up, 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 doesn't want it to go up, 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 up. There's a happy, healthy range that we call Mm. homeostasis. So it tries to bring it back down. And the only way it knows how to do it is it tells the testes to stop producing testosterone. And so your body then becomes reliant on that exogenous testosterone and the testes go, don't know what to do now. And they get a little bit smaller and you can get a tinier testes. Mm. There you go. I was going to say, estrogen is an anabolic steroid, isn't it? Yes. Absolutely. Just makes me think about when women take the pill. Like if we're dosing up on estrogen, how does our does our body naturally tell our ovaries to stop producing estrogen whilst that's happening? Uh, it, yes, it would. So there'd be a feedback mechanism up to the brain. So a specific part of your brain, right at the base of the brain, there's something called the hypothalamus. Mm. And it's the master regulator of hormones. It's the boss. And it has a conversation with these two little dangly things underneath it called the pituitary gland. And the hypothalamus tells the pituitary gland to release these two hormones. They're called gonadotropins. Mm -hmm. And they're called follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. They're super important in the female reproductive cycle. So follicle-stimulating hormone, what it will do is at the beginning of the reproductive cycle, it tells the follicles to start growing and developing. The follicles basically contain the eggs, right? And so every month, a couple of eggs start to mature. And this is because of follicle-stimulating hormone. Then only a couple are selected. And then after time, only one particular one is selected. And then at around about day 14, the luteinizing hormone comes out of the hypothalamus uh, of the pituitary gland travels down. And what the luteinizing hormone does is it tells it to ovulate. And so that egg gets released. Now, the important thing here is 
follicle stimulating hormone telling the uh, follicles to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and mature. Those follicles then release estrogen. And what the estrogen does is it goes back to the uterus. And because it's anabolic, it tells the uterus, let's grow, let's get thicker, let's become more vascularized, let's prepare for egg implantation. Because that's just mm. what it's thinking is going to happen every month. Once the egg has ovulated at around about day 14, what's left of that follicle is this little remnant called the corpus luteum. And that releases progesterone. And progesterone is also telling the uterus to grow and develop and thicken. And then that's released for the final 14 days because the cycle is around about 28 days. So you sort of think that estrogen is going to be released for that first 14 days. That's going to be the main reproductive hormone. And then progesterone for the remaining 14 days. And so that's why um, people, when they train, they think about, okay, am I in that follicular phase, the first 14 Mm. days, or the luteal phase, that last 14 days? Uh, And how does this affect me when I'm in the gym? Do I have the energy to train? Is it most beneficial for my growth and development? Um, What are my nutrient demands? Because, you know, when that uterus is growing and dividing and replicating, the nutrient demands go up. Mm. So, There are things that need to be taken into consideration. And people sometimes ask me, so what should I do? And my first answer is, well, I'm I'm not a woman. I've never experienced this (laughs) whatsoever. But my experience. You know more than probably most women. Well, yeah. But not about the experiential aspect. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And we know that a big part of exercise is how you feel. It is. Yeah. And each woman feels different. And so, you know, my response is always if it's a PT asking me or whatever. It's like, listen to your client. How does your client feel? Do they feel like they can do it? Or do they not want to do it? And that's the most important. Your body is super smart and it'll tell you. It'll tell you whether you want to train or you don't. Or you it's okay to, I mean, I think Sherelle, you did a post recently. It's okay to miss a session. You're not going to, you're not going to fail at all your goals and you're not going to lose all those gains that you've made. Mm. Sometimes taking a break is the best thing to do. Mm, absolutely and we absolutely preach recovery and like um you know time off everything that you do in order to be able to come back stronger and better not just physically but mentally and i think there's just such a huge gap between the mental component and fitness like people just think it's macro sets and reps and at the end of the day it is so much more than that and i think when you get into the coaching teaching space you start to realize how much psychology and mindset and you know mental health, impact, performance, and your physical training. It's so, so much um, more than what people give it credit for. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned, you know, you're having a rest day, you're not going to lose muscle or, or lose your gains. How long does it actually take to start losing gains? Because I remember when I got breast implants, that's the first thing I Googled. I'm like, shit, am I going to lose my gains? Like <laughs> I need a month off. And then the research <laughs> stated, well, you lose glycogen in the first stage, but I'm a little bit rusty on the numbers. Do you mind talking about that? Like how long does it actually take to start to lose muscle? So there's different types of, of muscle loss. Um, so sarcopenia is muscle loss due to old age. So what you'll find is when somebody ages, you know, from like 20 years of age to 80 years of age, for example, their, their muscle mass diminishes and diminishes you know, up to 30% of that mm. muscle mass just go straight down. That's sarcopenia aging. But you've also got atrophy and this can be, at- so atrophy is a loss of muscle tissue. So muscular atrophy. Um, And this happens just due to inactivity. Now, in actual fact, it it takes quite a while for this Mm. to happen. Um, The main thing that's happening isn't muscle loss. It's just the protein synthesis has diminished. Mm. So when you're, you know, always exercising, you're training, you know, every day to every second day, you're patterning your body into promoting protein synthesis. And so the, the DNA transcribes into amino acids that turns mm. folds into proteins. Those proteins can be used for growth, right? Um, and so you've got this pattern. So it's constantly working it through. But then if you just, let's just say you decided to lay in bed for 10 days and just not get out of bed for whatever reason, you find that while you would have a reduction in some muscle mass, most of the change is that you just drop down the protein synthesis by like 50, 50%. Mm. So it's just harder to make that muscle. Mm. Um, Muscle is one of those things where it's use it or lose it. Um, 
But another factor that you need to take into consideration is what are your energy demands? Mm -hmm. So you'll lose muscle mass if you've got high energy demands and you're not meeting them because at the end of the day, we need energy to survive and it's quite uh, energy demanding to keep a huge amount of muscle on the body. Mm -hmm. So if you're not training and you're not taking calories, for example, the body's going to work through its glycogen stores. It's going to start working through fat stores and then it's going to move on to muscle stores and start breaking those down to amino acids that we can shuttle into metabolic pathways to produce energy. Now that's the very last stage that takes a while to get to that point. Mm. But you do need to think about the energy demands of the body. Yeah. That was my biggest lesson in isolation. I was like freaking out in my training partner. I was like, what am I going to do? I'm going to like melt away while I'm in lockdown. How am I going to, I've got like two bands, like, what am I going to do? Um, And he was saying to me, he's like, it's so much harder to build muscle than maintain it. Like you need like 40, 50% of the volume to maintain the muscle mass that you've already built. So it's, it's totally going to be fine. Um, I think what happens is when people stop training and I'm sure so many people felt this in isolation, you just, you don't look as pumped. And that's just because of the fluid shift and the glycogen shift. And yeah. it's super easy to look in the mirror and be like, oh my God, like, do I even lift? Um, <laughs> and it was probably like a month, maybe a month back into training. I was exactly where I, you know, picked up from, if not further along. And I was like, wow, like, you know, consistency pays off guys. It's not, we just don't say it for nothing. Yeah, mm. no, exactly right. And, you know, one of the things that everyone should be mindful of as well is, you were probably the only person that noticed the change too, because, you know, we're all our biggest critic and, you know, we all, because we train all the time, we know exactly what our body looks like. And I think everybody should know exactly what their, what their body Mm. looks like. Be comfortable with it. Know exactly, you know, who you are. Uh, And, but you know, we go three days without the gym. Oh no, that's not, (laughs) look at what's going on there. I'm a mess. Everyone's going to think I've just lost everything. Yeah, I'm a mess. No one, no one notices. No, no. But but consistency does matter. And you're right. You build up glycogen stores and water comes in with that glycogen Mm. and you get bulked up. And if you're on creatine as well, it's going to be bringing water into the muscle tissue as well. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of factors that come into play. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good lesson there to really uh, reiterate, you know, resting is good for your body. It's not, you're not going to lose your gains. And when you come back, you will be strong. You'll be well rested and ready to go. So Mm. have your rest day if you need it. Listen to your body. It's important. Totally. Mm. Absolutely. When it comes to muscle growth then, so obviously, yeah, it's a lot harder to grow muscle, but you know, the thing newbie gains, when people start training, it's as if their body just changes dramatically. But then, you know, we've all been in the game a very long time and I just find it so much harder to build muscle now than when I first started, even though I'm eating a lot more now and training a lot harder now. Like what is the whole thing about what's newbie gains? Like why do we achieve muscle body composition easier earlier than 10 years down the track? So there's something something called the ceiling effect. Mm -hmm. And the ceiling effect occurs with um, athletes, people who are experienced trainers in which, you know, you've got this, growth, almost an exponential growth from when you're first starting out training and you notice strength and size gains and they just keep going up and up and up. Then you hit this point where you hit close to a ceiling and it's really hard to push through that ceiling. And so the ceiling effect just highlights that you need to probably work exponentially harder just to get smaller effects and to push through that. And this is one of the limitations to a lot of the um, strength and conditioning studies that are performed. You know, you see all these studies performed in people who don't lift and don't exercise and you go, wow, doing this, you get a 30% yeah. gain in that. Um, but Everything. when they do the same studies in someone who's trained and they go, no statistically significant benefit and you go, what? And it's likely because these individuals have already pushed themselves yeah. too close to their limits and they've mm-hmm. got that ceiling effect. Um, when you look at strength Benefits for a newbie, for example, and hypertrophy benefits for a newbie. You can see strength changes within like a couple of sessions, Mm. super quick. But a lot of those strength changes are simply due to the motor units, to neuronal firing, just Mm. to the the patterning, because you're learning a new skill and a task and you're getting better at it. And like I said, strength is a product of physiology. Hypertrophy is a product of anatomy. And it's a lot more time- um, uh, time, uh, it's much more difficult to change your anatomy 
quickly mm. than it is to change your physiology quickly. And mm. so the hypertrophy changes do take time. And because you're at this lower area where you haven't grown muscle, you're a newbie, it hasn't happened, you've got all this room for growth. Mm. And so these changes... It expands. It's huge. And they probably don't even need to have these significant changes in diet and sleep and just mm. to have these tiny benefits. But as you get up, as you become an athlete, you've got to hone those things. And I think this is what a lot of people don't realize is that when they're not an athlete and they see an athlete and they talk about, you know, very specific amounts of sleep time, very specific types of food that they eat, very specific things that they do with training. And a lot of people go, they're just taking it too far. But what yeah. are they, you know, what are they doing? But it's because they've already surpassed all that stuff. They, they actually need to make the subtle changes, even just for the subtle benefit. So mm. the subtle change may be a subtle benefit, but for an athlete, that's the small change is a huge change. Yeah. Because professionals, when you look at them, they're right at the top. And there's like, like, for example, you look at the fastest runners, 100 meter sprinters. It's like fractions of seconds between yeah. each other. Mm. Anything that would give them a fraction of a second is going to be huge for yeah. them. So that, you know, and that's another yeah. thing people need to keep in mind. Newbies, mm. they just need to train really and they'll get these big changes. Athletes yeah. got to do so much more. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Really well said. I think the big, like the best example of that is like the Olympics. Like I've been reading a book about um, some of the training that they do for it and it is hustling for like seconds over a four year training cycle or period. Wow. Uh, and it's crazy. But I think something um, that I often see with new clients as well is they will make so much progress in such a short amount of time. And I'm constantly like trying to like, it's awesome doing a good job. This isn't normal. So I'm like, you know, don't not, get used to it. Yeah. Like, yep. yeah. Well, you added 50% to your hip thrust in the last two weeks. <laughs> this isn't going to continue at this rate. Yeah. But what happens is like once they bypass that newbie stage, it can be quite disheartening for them because they go, I'm not progressing. And it's like yeah. two kilos on the bar is huge, right? Yeah. Like you, you can't just always whack on another 20 kilo plate and be able to lift it. Um, so do you find I- a lot of your clients drop out at the, like this is the – make or break sort of part for many clients that at the beginning they're like yes all this growth and then they hit this little wall and they go nah it's too much effort I'm, I'm leaving or I'm not noticing the gains or this isn't working or is is that common I would say it's common in um like society as a whole to get started yeah and if they don't if they're not consistent and one, they don't see the results quick enough or they're not making the progress that they want, that demotivates them and they stop going. But I feel like if they're well-prepared, i.e. listening to this podcast and knowing about these being educated, things, being educated mm. and understanding that consistency is king. And the more that we put out, not just 16-week transformations, but five-year transformations yeah. um, and show the reality of like, yeah, you make all this progress in your first dieting phase and, you know, your first 12 months of training after that the ones who do well are the ones who stay consistent for a long period of time and accept the one percent progress and i think the example danny is like really us between shows you know like like if we make the same stage weight that's totally fine we hope for the tiniest change in conditioning or whatever it might be it's just progress becomes so much smaller and that is normal yeah, that's why we're trying to just, yeah, continue to educate, get people like yourself on and and just say that we can't get sucked into the eight-week challenge before and afters anymore. Like that's mm. just, yeah, that's uh, we need to get rid of that mentality. And as Sherelle said, yeah, it's a lifelong thing. Um, we need to be doing this forever the healthy way. So, mm. yeah, just through education, we're trying to help people realise that it's not just going to be quick changes all the time. Yeah. 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 And I thought I knew quite a bit about muscle physiology until. Wow. (laughs) That was cool. That was awesome. We can pick your brain forever, but I understand it's been over an hour of um, the great stuff here. So yeah. Wow. That was really cool. Thank you. That's okay. I'm happy to do it anytime. Bring me on anytime. It's a good chat. I know our listeners will absolutely love this episode. You're a a wealth of knowledge, Mark. So where can our audience find more about you or learn um, about any more of the content that you put out? So you can see some of my short videos on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Mike Todorovic. So that's D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C. I need to get a shorter surname. Uh, <laughs> and the same on Twitter as well at Dr. Mike Todorovic. Otherwise, you can listen to my podcast. Just type into 
Google Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast, or you can go on YouTube and watch my videos again, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike, type that in and you'll be able to learn. I've got hundreds of videos talking about Mm. everything about the human body. Yeah. Amazing. And it's, you know, audio is one of the best ways I like to learn, like definitely through podcasts and watching on YouTube and those sorts of things to be able to retain more um, when I was studying, especially. So head, definitely head over and mm. check out Mike's um, content or, on every social media platform there is. Everything. Um, and if you did enjoy this episode, please do share it on your social media stories. Tag myself, tag Danielle, of course, tag Mike and the Level Up podcast. Um, thanks again, Mike, for sharing your wisdom with everyone. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you.